A Parable from Mexico Two American businessmen approach a local boater standing near the waterfront. They see an investment opportunity, more accumulation, because the local runs a boating business but only has one boat, and therefore few clients. They ask if he would like to buy another boat, to which the local responded, Why would I want to do that? Well, then you could serve more clients. Why would I want to do that? So that you could make more money. Why would I want to do that? Well, then you could hire extra labor, scale your company. You could be renting out boats all day. Why would I want to do that? Think about it. After several years, you could just be overseeing the rentals, and you'd never have to take the boats out yourself. You could have full-time staff and a huge profit margin. Why would I want to do that? Because then you can retire early. You could spend your days relaxing here by the ocean, enjoying your life, and spending more time with your family. To which the local boater slyly responded, But that's what I already do. Today, I'd like to suggest that you might not want to quit your day job. I see articles and clickbait content all the time with suggestions for you know, how to pursue your passion and remove yourself from the drudgery of work. You can win. Everybody without such secret knowledge is going to be stuck in their epitomal hells, but you can be the outlier. And I don't know that this will work, at least for most of us. I also don't know that we would want that, or we would be need to be lucky enough that all of the work that needs to happen in order for you to have that easy life you want is still going to be done by somebody. If everyone quit their day job, well, there goes restaurants and food production and all of the infrastructure that I assume you would still want to have. The whole quit your day job motif is pushing for what we looked at last time. Intrinsic labor in a production for use economy. But I don't think we would want that kind of economy. We, we might want it for ourselves, but not the whole thing. And this is what we saw in the last episode. Generally, there are two overarching perspectives of work and labor. Extrinsic, where you use your time, energy, and ability as a means to an end of wealth accumulation. Your work is detached from the primary motivation of livelihood, but it makes that livelihood possible. And then there's intrinsic, where your labor is a natural extension of your livelihood. The way you use your time, energy, and ability is directly correlated with the outcome you currently experience. And this leads to what Marshall Salins in the Stone Age Economics calls a production for exchange economy. You're exchanging your production and labor for something, usually a paycheck, or there's a production for use economy where your labor is the natural byproduct of your survival. The things that you are doing are directly building your livelihood. What this means is that there are multiple kinds of work. There isn't one way of working and then everything else is not working. The question isn't whether or not you work. The question is which kind of work you do. And that's the choice we have to make. And as we noted last time, the choice is a package deal. Often I see conflating the two perspectives, wanting a little of both and transferring our expectations and critiques from one to the other. And it's a lack of consistency, really. But first, we need to know that there's even a difference. So what do we do? I'd like to explore why our society's dominant form of labor isn't ideal. And hey, no form is. But I want to take a specific look at ours because we need to be honest about it. And we need to properly understand the deficits of a production for exchange economy. But then I want to offer some caution for why we probably won't let this framework go. At the least, hopefully these two episodes on work and labor will allow us to have more informed conversations about this thing that is so central to the life of just about every human being. Because wherever you fall between these options, and look, it's your choice, but we should at least be able to understand what we are choosing and what kind of society and livelihood will likely ensue as a result. Let's start with something that many modern citizens in the United States take for granted. Taking out the trash. 
whether it's a hopper, a bin, a dumpster, we have these receptacles that we put items into that were previously stored in a smaller receptacle in our homes to hold the items we are discarding from our homes. And in order for those items to not sit there for infinity, something else needs to happen once you have placed said items in said receptacle. For many epochs in history, uh, the process was slightly different. Discarded items were left in a certain area to usually decompose. It's cheap and easy fertilizer, you know. You'd have to let those things sit there until they melded back into the earth. But when you have things like plastic or diapers, waiting for those to decompose could take slightly longer than you'd prefer. So best to move them off your property, let them endure their struggle toward eradication somewhere else. Or get a burn barrel, speed up the process. But if you want those items removed, what do you do? Well, you could take them somewhere else. Maybe hide them on someone else's property. But likely, you'll want to make a deal with someone. And then they can endure the process for you. But it will take their time, energy, and ability. Not to mention their land. And they may need some compensation to make it worth it for them. But then they also might say, hey would be more profitable and a fuller use of my labor for you to pay me to come and get this stuff. So put your items in this box and I'll come get it, say, once a week. Waste management services. Now, it may be that there are waste management services who do this work out of the goodness of their heart, making the world a better place one used diaper at a time. But I'm guessing that most individuals who provide these services aren't doing it because, you know, it's something they're passionate about. They're doing it because it's an effective means of providing them a wage. I mean, do people love handling the items we don't want in our homes or on our property? So why do they do it? Because it's a business opportunity within the production for exchange economy. Now, what happens when someone says, this is tough work, it's garbage, I can make more money with less time and energy using my abilities doing, you know, this other thing. Like, have you ever thanked your waste management provider? Hey, thanks for doing this work for me. Well, they aren't doing it for you. They are doing it for a wage. So what happens when they decide not to do it anymore? What would happen if every single waste management worker found different jobs? You place your discarded items in the receptacle and no one ever comes to get it. Waste management is a service industry that is quite new to society. Production for use economies didn't really have this throughout history. One, because they didn't procure a lot of items that needed discarded. Two, because most of their items decomposed and were actually useful. And three, because the idea of waste was something that in order to survive as a village or tribe needed to be responsibly dealt with by everyone. One of the markers of production for use economies is a lack of specialization. There was work to be done, survival to procure, and everyone did what was necessary to make that happen. So this is why production for use economies are also typically collectivist societies. The idea that enough money can provide for your needs is not necessarily true. So we work in order to have an income, to be able to buy and do things. But if the people you need to provide those things don't need your money, those products and services won't exist. If no one needs your money, they won't come pick up your trash. They won't make your dinner and serve it to you in a dimly lit, well-decorated building. They won't create travel infrastructure, internet capability, or raise your children People don't do various jobs because they are serving the general will. And they know these tasks need done. You know, I got the short end of the stick, but I'm willing to do it. A production for exchange economy is based on people working because they need money to buy things for themselves. If the chain of consumption gets broken enough, everyone is affected. This is why it's so important in a production for exchange economy to compel people to have infinite desire and accumulate as much as possible, stimulating the economy, offer great products and services and fancy packaging, and market with such ferocity that demand exceeds supply. We need to all want things together in order for the process to continue. 
And you're seeing this right now in the restaurant industry. It is convenient to not make dinner, especially when you aren't very good at it. But in order for you to eat by just driving somewhere, sitting down and selecting a choice item, someone else has to be using their time, energy, and ability to provide it. As soon as they feel the compensation is not worth it, or a better offer comes up, or, or they just decided that they would like to enjoy their evenings, you have the possibility that restaurants don't exist. Can you imagine the United States without restaurants? People would lose their freaking minds. But it's a possibility in this kind of economy. Capitalism, the modern form of production for exchange economy, capitalism is fragile in this way. Capitalism was established to allow people to be self-serving. It is designed to play to human nature's propensity to look out for one's own self-interest. But the reasoning behind it was well-meaning. You allow people to be selfish and have autonomy, and they will use their time, energy, and ability to create beneficial production. If there's a possibility of a wage and accumulation, you could get tons of economic growth, technological innovation, political stability. And let's be honest, taking care of waste properly, making your own food, having your children with you every hour of the day, it can be difficult. If you can create value or just the perception of value with a product or service and accumulate profit, you can avoid much of this drudgery and have a smoother means to fulfilling your own self-interest. And when you do, you might also contribute to economic and social progress. That makes life easier for everyone. It's a win-win. Play to selfish motivation and help people, potentially. But this also means you are dependent on people to provide for us what we cannot do or do not want to provide for ourselves. Specialization, with the added factor of labor being dependent on incentives, can be exposed quite quickly. I think this is the iceberg conversation sitting beneath the qualms of the day job. So when people criticize capitalism, it usually takes the guise of being against excessive accumulation. One person shouldn't have a trillion dollar business while others are going hungry. I get it. That's a moral issue. But capitalism isn't concerned first and foremost with morals. Capitalism is concerned with stimulating growth and stability. Give better infrastructure and innovation with increased opportunity, especially compared to, to the feudal system and mercantilism, and hopefully people will make good moral choices. But there's also a chance then that capitalism might be at the expense of individuals. But then again, there's a built-in mantra that each person theoretically controls their own destiny. Don't want to be a waste management worker? You can start your own business. Don't want to work a grueling restaurant shift day in and day out? You don't have to. And there are all sorts of ambiguities with those statements, right? Access to capital is often difficult, usually hereditary or geographical. There are a bunch of social factors in play with employment. I get that. But in order for any of this to work, I'm just saying you need the whole thing. A production for exchange economy makes a whole lot of beneficial things possible. Yeah, you could end up with Jeff Bezos or core economic systems, expunging peripheral ones, but that's the risk you got to be willing to take in order to gain the benefits of economic access, technological innovation, and all of those other claims. There are other options economically, but those have been tricky too. Mercantilism is the economic system that preceded capitalism. Why was capitalism embraced? Because mercantilism was worse. But that's what we now have. Capitalism is designed for self-interest with a focus on the individual and a focus on luxury, convenience, and potential ease. You need surplus profit exacerbated by infinite desire. And the point is not to offer value necessarily. It's about satiating desire, which sometimes means creating the perception of value by concocting desire in consumers. You're fulfilling your self-interest by playing to the self-interest of others. And as capitalism goes, this will actually be beneficial to the whole. And listen, you don't have internet, motor vehicles, or candy without capitalism. 
I, I often find it a bit ironic the people who rail against capitalism while using the very achievements of capitalism. Drinking coffee while using a MacBook Pro connected to high-speed internet after you drove a massive machine on gasoline through the most advanced, efficient transportation system ever created while saying we need to get rid of this economic system is at least confusing. At worst, it's ignorant. Getting rid of one eliminates all those other things too. It's a package deal. So, a production for exchange economy is fragile, but it does have its perks. But what about the other side of this package deal? A necessary reflection is that if work is an unavoidable component of being alive, and a significant one of pretty much every human being's life, how you work is going to play a significant role in how you understand your life. So, what is the goal of your life? What does it mean to be alive? How you work shapes the answer to those questions. If the goal is accumulation, that has an immediate effect on how you understand yourself. Because all of this is just describing how you ought to use your time, energy, and abilities. Labor becomes a means to our rational understanding of the world. It's a lens or filter for how we approach everything. Which also means it is important for how we perceive our existential meaning. If you're just here to survive, get through another day, that shapes what you think existence is about. If there's a primitive satisfaction that requires less labor and more dependence on others, that is going to determine a lot of how you perceive your life and the people around you. Now, I'm going to say a name and a couple key words that, depending on your disposition, may get you fired up. Please don't. I'm just surveying the terrain here. And beyond a lot of the outcomes associated with this name, the scholarship produced isn't to be done away with just because he is often interpreted in very specific ways. So, you ready? Karl Marx. Yes, Karl Marx had other thoughts on socioeconomics than just communism. And the one we're talking about now he called this a species essence. It is the human experience that our labor is capable of realizing a vital part of the human existence. He talks about how through work we are externalizing the internal consciousness and mental experience of a person into tangible action and creation. He didn't come up with this idea either. It's been around for a long time. And, and all of this is generally agreed upon. So before you start lambasting the concept just because it's associated with Marx, just think about it. Through how you use your time, energy, and abilities, you are taking the internal awareness of your life and putting it into something physical. So what if that process actually stifles your conception of life and reality? What if how you use your labor does not reflect something positive or good? Think, think of the person who walks away from waste management. I drive around, I pick up other people's trash, this is the catalyst for why the whole quit your day job motif is present. Because people look at how they are using their time, energy, and ability and concluding that it isn't meaningful. Now, it can also happen that if the incentive of a wage is strong enough, you can forgo the meaning and replace it with the outcome that, you know, by doing this, it provides a meaningful life for themselves or their family. But this idea of species essence is why you hear debates about how a successful job is more than just one's position and salary. Yeah, a job can provide certain income or power or influence, but other factors are important to why people may like or not like a job. How much flexibility it has, how valuable the outcome of the production is. And when there is a dissonance between the use of labor and one's understanding of the world and life, this is called alienation. It's when you feel foreign to the world you are inhabiting with your work. When there's a disconnect between you and who you are and what you do. And yes, Marx popularized the term, but he certainly is not the only socioeconomic philosopher to utilize the concept. Because if labor is essential to being human, and it is a primary mechanism for connecting humans to their social world, 
and it is a means to interact with the natural world and satisfy your needs, labor is a process of giving an individual a sense of agency in their survival and subsistence. When your labor contributes to your self-understanding, this is good. When your labor makes you feel less than human, this is alienation. Hegel actually coined the term, by the way. He described it as a disassociation between essence and existence, where your experience of the world doesn't reflect the ideal of how the world should be. Uh, Feuerbach, Schopenhauer, Kierkegaard, they all contribute to this phrase too. It's all about not having the ability or opportunity to fulfill human potential and how you create and shape life and society. You, therefore, no longer see yourself as a part of the big picture of existence, hence alienation. Now, within alienation, there are four kinds. First is alienation from the product. You labor to create something, but it isn't yours. So an exchange-based economy is you know, primed to create this. But what about when you make something you can't afford or you make something you can't even use? What about when you don't have any ownership over what you are producing? All of your time, energy, and ability is going into something disconnected from your actual life. Second is alienation from the activity of labor itself. So when your labor is just a means to an end, there's no connection between what you are doing and your life. There's no symbiosis between the labor and the laborer. There's no connection uh, other than the external wage that results. And this is what happens when you know you sell your labor for a wage. Essentially, your labor belongs to someone else because you've traded it for something else. Third, and it starts getting more existential here, alienation from yourself or just generally alienation from humanity. And as all of this exchange is occurring, you know, and you aren't connected to what you're doing, you also are living a life then because it's taking up your time and energy. You're living a life that's not actually you. So at work, you are one person, but only feel like yourself outside of work because your work has nothing to do with who you are. Finally, the fourth one is alienation from others. And the emphasis here is that other people become economic objects, not people. So your social networks, at least the ones associated with your job, those are transactions. And you maintain them to maintain the actual goal for all of your labor, which is accumulation and wage. Right? Think about like the common salesperson or the person in the MLM network. You know, you're, you're just an object for them to try to make money. You're part of their job. And for those of you interested in further nerdery, uh, Emil Durkheim made this observation of what he called mechanical solidarity versus organic solidarity. You should check it out. Or not. It's up to you. What you should notice about all of this is that alienation is a byproduct of a production for exchange economy. And I'm not saying that just by living in a capitalistic society, this is going to happen to you. A lot of people love their jobs and find vast meaning in them. The point is simply that this is part of the concession, a potential outcome of the package deal. When work is a means to achieve a salary, a majority of your life becomes disassociated from your actual lived experience and therefore your identity. And maybe it's just the mindless gestures that you're willing to do because it's incentivized enough, you know, like making pins in a factory. It's a classic example. Maybe it is, you know, politicking customers or selling a product that you don't actually think someone needs, but you need to meet a quota. This is normal because work no longer exacts livelihood. Work is a means to livelihood. The ends justify the means. And just as an example, I write a lot and I find it very meaningful. It's a space of work that feels nothing like alienation for me until I have to work with a publisher. And it isn't every publisher, but I can sense a huge difference between me writing something because I'm taking these things from inside of me and putting them into something tactile, a difference between that and having to write to make a sale. But as it goes with selling art, you have to satisfy demand. And I always have this sense of disappointment when I get feedback that says, hey, this is great, but our readers will be more likely to buy this if you fill in the blank. 
and I need money. So I change something to make it more appealing, even if it feels like a compromise. And that game that I play, and this happens in probably every field and occupation imaginable, it feels like selling my soul. That's alienation. And that's the dominant relationship to work. Because it's so important to acquire wages, wealth, influence, and power with our limited abilities, time, and energy, life becomes equivalent to the job we have. Work becomes a noun. The outcome is such a priority that we are willing to let go of meaning if necessary. And maybe a balancing act ensues. Work-life balance, right? But the exchange of labor for a wage is at the expense of something. Or at least it can be. And too much separation between life and work while trying to balance relationships with distinct activities in the minorly available time could lead you to conversations on the couch about divorce. Or it could just lead to relational non-existence. And don't forget, this method was a huge step forward. It promoted the human person in comparison to mercantilism or feudalism. And we need to remember that. That people, for one of the first times in history, the majority of people could be in control of their production, not governments. It doesn't mean that this happened, but it was a possibility. It was also a way to challenge the apparent selfishness that philosophers like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, during this time, believed were intrinsic to human nature. You know, a lot of people are going around saying like, hey, human nature is inherently selfish. We should stop trying to pretend it isn't. Capitalism played to that. And capitalism also made things move. There's a reason technological and cultural innovation exponentially increased as this age of enlightenment kind of birthed the industrial revolution. It created competition. It promoted the individual, you know, get ahead, accumulate profit, acquire luxuries, Grab previously unavailable power and ease and comfort, even if it's at the expense of the person. And as labor became a form of currency, the incentives being extrinsic mean that the worker isn't actually invested in the work itself. It's just a means to an end. Nor is the employer invested in the worker. It's just people being individuals and doing what they have to do to satisfy their own ends. And with that loss of connection came a loss in existential satisfaction. People began to hate their day jobs. No one wants to work anymore. And it might be because how you are using your ability, time, and energy is completely and utterly meaningless because it is completely and utterly disassociated from your life. But this makes the quantitative accumulation of material needs and comfort possible. It's a package deal. And this problem of alienation, it's not the case in a production-for-use economy because the labor you're doing, it's directly tied to your life. And that makes a production-for-use economy sound romantic, doesn't it? And I get it. I'm often fascinated by the assumption that most of our lives ought to be spent procuring resources, climbing ladders, and gaining esteem so that we can provide a lifestyle that we now have much less time to enjoy. We make our existence solely confined to accumulation where, though it's cliche to say, we get to the end of our lives and wonder if we have wasted it. In the basic and most primitive form, the human experience was contained to 10 to 20 people, then slightly larger communities, all of which live with meager material survival that would find our modern amount of luxury, ease, comfort unimaginable. Yet the other side of that dismay is that we, in our unprecedented gains, are also surrounded by strangers with lots more resources, but less time, less joy, less meaning. We are the richest epoch of history, full of sadness, depression, suicide, and divorce. And Emile Durkheim, who I mentioned earlier, he actually wrote a work based on this. He noticed how suicide was spiking, but only in the places that capitalism was growing. There's a connection here. And you know, our ancestors might have been unfortunate in thousands of ways. 
but there's also a chance that they had the one thing that we lack and desperately desire. Which is the better human circumstance? The cultural heroism of success and wealth without being connected to or invested in daily livelihood? And, you know, it's accompanying often messy people. Or is it better to have connection and meaningful work with nothing? Or is it possible to have both? Our limited nature implies that these two outcomes are mutually exclusive. The economic choice is a package deal. It's also not completely your choice. A person exists in relation to the world around them, and much ink has been spilled concerning sociological interdependency and relational entanglement. Your social location determines the economic norms of of your life and how you're going to approach work, and not just because of social constructs or cultural indoctrination. Because in order to function in a particular society, you have to play according to the rules. And listen, you can nail a dream job, work that actually matters on your own terms. You could retire early if you've enhanced accumulation in your early years. or You could check out, but you'll still need to depend on someone else. You could move to an isolated island or live off the land. But if you are going to live within society in order to have access to the commodities that society functions by, it's going to imply a particular pattern of work. You want internet? Play along. You live in a tribal village and want to be able to create a great invention? Well, it's going to keep you from the inherent intimacy of the relationships because it's a package deal. You only have so much time and energy and capability. An economic form of work that consumes your identity will provide the utmost extravagance and possibility, but at the expense of your time and energy and possibly relationships and lifestyle satisfaction. In an economic form more qualitative, and intrinsic, it could could obtain minimal material satisfaction, and it could obtain existential meaning, but you will not have done the hard work to accumulate to your heart's desires. It's easy to see the problems of capitalism and alienation when you live in the midst of it, and we ought not to ignore its benefits that we often just assume, but we ought to heed caution that the seemingly romantic Stone Age economy is anything but. There's a painting my mother loves, the Scottish Highlands. It is the expected landscape-style painting popular in Europe's classical art, but the one thing that makes this painting unique, outside of the accomplished portrayal of a you know majestic scene, is that in the foreground, there is a single figure, apparently a hunter, with two dogs. And for me, I look at quaint art with a simple figure in the landscape, and I imagine a simple abode with a simple life, and I yearn for that contentment. Yet, I imagine if I met such a figure like in real life, I would assume maybe like some sort of eccentricity, possibly even that they have some form of pathology. You know, it's worth acknowledging that the romantic portrayal we have in our heads is actually a daunting way of life. Because those economics are also a package deal. If our world really wants the intrinsic form of existence, we would need to change our entire approach to work, but we'd also need to change our entire lifestyle. In order to have that existence, the standard of living is almost at the entire other end of the spectrum. Do we want to prioritize accumulation for the standard of gaining access to high material wants, or do we want to prioritize simplicity with the standard of contentment? By saying yes to one, we will need to say no to the other, because we have to fit these opposing outcomes into the natural limits of human and social life. And we have to ask the same thing about our individual lives. If the standard is cultural success within modern achievements and increased profitability, to provide for infinite means, then it will determine how you understand work and labor and how it fits into your life. If the standard is simplicity in meaningful relationships and flexibility and time, then those priorities become non-negotiable and mutually exclusive to the demands and priorities of attainment. What is the life you want to create? Do you want to be buried with the outcomes of a production for exchange approach? or a production for use one. I think we have this innate longing for the production for use economy because we have a certain acknowledgement that our lives are in the end vapor. 
We inherently value the beauty of healthy relationships, even though we don't always prioritize them. And listen, I've officiated hundreds of funerals. In the end, no one remembers your work output, your business success, or your profit margin. They, they might have been substantial to the life you are able to provide, but the people don't go on about your material extravagance. They remember the relationship, because in the end, when it comes to human beings, that's all that seems to matter. An inescapable component of human nature is our desire to belong. And we recoil at the banality of the modern work experience because it tends to be at the expense of that holistic belonging. You know, maybe you will be buried with a full schedule, a full bank account, and a futile attempt at immortality where you wish you could have it all back. Maybe you will be buried with a meager life where you poignantly held a few things with love. The point is you have to choose. Our culture certainly promotes that we spend our time pursuing the abstract objective of accumulation and rising to the top of some mythological heroism. Work is simply the medium of that pursuit. But in pursuing this objective, I can't help but wonder what we are missing, or maybe what we are avoiding. One of those socioeconomic philosophers called this out way back when the journey was just getting started. His name is Max Weber, and he articulated this in what has become known as the Iron Cage. Quote, No one knows who will live in this cage in the future, or whether at the end of this tremendous development entirely new prophets will arise, or if there will be a great rebirth of old ideas and ideals, or, if neither, mechanized petrification embellished with a sort of convulsive self-importance. For of the last stage of this cultural development, it might well be truly said, specialist without spirit, sensualist without heart, this nullity imagines that it has attained a level of civilization never before achieved. End quote. The pursuit of the infinite beckons that nothing is enough. When nothing is enough, we give ourselves permission to feel as if we are accomplishing much and winning according to the constructs of wealth and fame. Yet we might actually be consigning ourselves to a narrow experience of the vast world. I wonder if the Christian tradition was right in claiming that the achievement of gaining the whole world may cause us to lose our lives. Maybe it could be said that in choosing to have infinite accumulation, we are choosing to forego that which holds our soul. It takes humility, strength, and fortitude to acknowledge your limits and compromise desirable things that aren't all achievable within the constraints of your finite life. It takes even more to set those aside so that you might be buried with a small, weathered, yet well-lived life. I have yet to meet someone who was wildly successful by our cultural economic standards and felt satisfied. I have met folks who did these things, who accomplished the never-ending feat of procuring it all and warned that they never enjoyed the fruit. I have met folks who experienced the world in unadulterated individual freedom, disconnected from every source of life, and concluded that it was all akin to vapor. I've met people who walked away burnout, empty, and yearning to have it all back. I've also met the wise simpleton of primitive affluence who was content with enough who held life well, enjoyed the connection even though there was a lack of accumulation, embraced their finitude and therefore their life. Socioeconomics is much bigger than just abstract theories. We are talking about what kind of lives we're going to live. Both have their benefits, their complexities and their shortcomings. But at the end of the day, we are choosing what kind of life is possible. Now, that being said, you've got these two package deals, and the one seems to resonate much more with the desired human experience. You know, most people would say, yes, belonging, contentment, relational intimacy, those are more important values. But the economic reality that would foster that, though it seems romantic from a distance, like, is that even possible? I mean, logistically, 
What does the United States in the 21st century look like as a production for use economy? Could we even pull that off? But more importantly, would we actually want to? Is an alternative to our modern conception of work possible? In short, I don't think so. Yes, extrinsic work might disconnect us from ourselves, each other, the places we are. But the pursuit of individual attainment, while not providing much in the way of meaningful ends or even a meaningful journey, I think it just provides too much to let it go. Especially because once you've tasted that reality, it might just be too hard to live without it. We might be at the point of no return. Unless that return were to be forced upon us, doomsdayers rejoice. Seriously, though, just consider the amount of sociological interdependency necessary to buy a tomato from the store. From global trade to mechanized transportation to the swath of logistics it takes to get and purchase that tomato, we are absolutely dependent on a social life that we desire and function necessarily by. Your other option is to spend months of time and sweat saving 33 cents. Like, do you like going to entertainment events, watching television, being able to drive to see family or friends, or having things like cell phones? Can, can you imagine a tribal society even being able to contemplate what a cell phone is? Yeah, it's this combination of metal and electricity, which is kind of like lightning, but not a scary kind of... It, and it allows you to say things that fly through the air to someone who isn't even within screaming distance. It's, it's like smoke signals. Or something. They probably wouldn't even be able to conceive of that. And not because they are inferior or cognitively deficient, because the very existence of such a tool would go against the standards of their way of life. This is what Marshall McLuhan talks about with technology. We make our tools and then our tools make us. Technological developments reflect and shape the values of a society. These things catalyze the priorities of our economic directive which makes these things part of the package deal. Could we improve the economic conditions to make our society less problematic? Yeah. You can treat the symptoms, but to make it different, that requires a complete overhaul. That's not just tuning up the vehicle or even getting a new vehicle. It's getting rid of the vehicles altogether because they are part of the standard that reflects the society and makes that society possible. We could make modifications to our current economy, but to have a different reality would mean transforming it, and by transforming it, we would be left with a whole different world. I do sometimes romanticize about being a hunter-gatherer with primal affluence where work and life and rest unfold by the whims of necessity and contentment, but let's be honest, I'm not that romantic. I happen to benefit from things like transportation infrastructure, waste management, fast food, coffee. I like using the internet and going to the dentist. And I can even do those things at the same time. That romantic vision wouldn't allow me to participate in society. No driving, no communication technology, no eating food that I didn't grow. I don't want that level of difficulty. I'm not woke enough to rail against capitalism and industrialism in an air-conditioned single-family home using high-speed internet and drinking coffee grown on the other side of the world. I'll spare you that irony. And I'm not ready to throw that bathwater out. We might say we want a simple life. We might say we want all the benefits of an intrinsic production for use economy, but I don't think we want a simple world. We complain about work environments while constantly benefiting from them. We complain about complicated work systems while demanding the complex world that requires those complicated work systems. If we want luxury, convenience, and unhindered freedom, we are going to have to play along and choose the mode of using our limited time, energy, and ability to extrinsically work. I think we'd rather have the drudgery of work than a world of collective simplicity because the romanticized belonging would make certain things impossible. Things that I think we'd prefer. We've made a remarkable deal. Yes, we are sad, anxious, incomplete, disconnected, restless, and lonely because we've created an amazing, luxurious life of surplus at the expense of the very things that could provide what we're looking for. But I don't think we're going to rewire society. I mean... 
We aren't even willing to switch to the metric system because of the overwhelming logistical challenges. Why would we consider reformatting our very notion of work? But I don't think that we would want to even if we could. Which takes me back to those dilapidated buildings at the nostalgic fish market I told you about last episode. You know, the one with the sign that read, Work. A productive use of time that gives life meaning. I can't help but wonder if such a propensity is forever lost to the past. I just don't think we want that kind of existence. It, too, is a package deal rife with difficulty. I don't think we want that kind of responsibility, interdependence, and simplicity. And I honestly don't think we would want that kind of belonging, which means we might not want that kind of work. So what do we do? How do we find the best middle ground in all of this? I happen to live on something akin to a farm, out in the middle of nowhere, or so people tell me. This past summer I was working in some of the gardens, and I always love the peacefulness of a field. Seeing the sky whipped with clouds in the early summer, it offers a proper sense of proportion. The smallness of my life in the midst of the world and history. And I was transplanting an array of sunflowers, It's thirsty work, where you get done and you just have to sit a moment covered in dirt and sweaty from the toil. But it feels right. It feels successful. It's in those moments that the problems of the world fade away, and there's a glimpse of simplicity. The smallness of life makes sense there. You know, the world, it's not okay. We've accepted a deal. But I've found something in this kind of work that is a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Fortunately, I've been able to find a relationship to work that ebbs toward a healthier version than what almost got me divorced years ago. And it has come from what I've found in the fields, looking out at the vast countryside after the physical exertion that producing food requires. And I've found that the only answer to the problem of work, at least for me, has been to take my cue from what I see around me. Honestly, I think the only thing we can do is to learn to rewire our prerogative slowly one day at a time. And unfortunately, within our economy and our culture, I think it's the only thing possible at this point. The sunflowers remind me of my futile attempt to make belonging and contentment possible within our given world. Work is not a means to an end for them, but simply an act of being. That, then, is my only answer to the grave complexity of this conversation. To learn to be more human in an inhumane world. To put a dent in a machine whose end is not in sight. To be content with enough. To slow down. To embrace our finitude. To have moments of being unproductive. To let opportunities go untouched. And have a proper sense of proportion in this vast universe. In the agrarian tradition, this is their answer to living in and depending on a production for exchange economy while desiring the benefits of a production for use economy. And you'll often hear agrarians differentiate between work and good work. The most I can do and the small place I am with the small life I have is this good work. This dance of work that honors the place it is done, honors the art and craft by which it is done, honors what it makes, its use, and those who use it. It is a kind of work that is modestly scaled. It's reflective of its context, and it honors the sacred limits by which we will all one day succumb. It's what Voltaire wrote about in his popular book, Condite. Tend to your garden. Respond to the nature of where you are with the immediate action it requires, and that's it. So I'm trying to learn to live well, with my feet firmly rooted on the ground where I am. I'm learning to be more content with enough, to say no and reap the consequences of not taking advantage of every opportunity, to steal a bit of intrinsic economics in the futile reality of an extrinsic world. And that doesn't give me much hope for existence as a whole, but it does leave me with a simpler life than I knew and blossoming relationships to where I belong 
it's also the only thing I can control. Quitting your day job isn't going to solve this problem. But wherever we find ourselves within the production for exchange economies that we are so dependent on, we might just be able to steal a little bit of intrinsic work. We can learn from these production for use economies and slowly incorporate bits of its value in the complex world we find ourselves. It's not a great answer, I know that. But at least for me, it's all I can do. What does good, meaningful work look like in the situation you are? Maybe the best you can do is pull back from hours, even if it means the ladder to climb is no longer an option. Maybe you have a job that is still something to endure, but it can become less in the way. Maybe for you, it's just you need to make profit become less of an incentive. Maybe you just need to have something where you put your hands in the dirt. And if the most we have done is understand why things are the way we are, well, we're a step closer than where we were yesterday. And that's why I hold on to the parable of the boater that I shared at the beginning. Not because I'll be able to replicate that life, but because I elevate it as a statue that can inform my life more and more. The, the boater is an inspiration. I probably wouldn't want their life. I probably won't change much of how I do things. But if I can raise that approach as a healthy ideal, I may find myself turning a little bit more toward it. See, our world offers such a promising endeavor. But I need to consider the alternative question. Why would I want to do that? Sometimes what is normal is actually insane. Good work might be the best option for our sanity. My only hope is that I can learn more and more how to work like that. And, and maybe that's what those fishermen knew in Cortez, Florida. A productive use of time that gives life meaning. Yeah, maybe we could all learn a bit more about how to live in such a way. We might all then live a little better. And work could become a productive use of time that gives life meaning. Thank you.